السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, First of all I want to apologize for the delay in starting and the um, some of the technical issues that we're having and one of the reasons why we're having that is because we are simultaneously broadcasting today to uh, our QP students, the Quranic Progression students which is the usual tafsir class that I do on a Tuesday evening uh, which you can access via quranicprogression.org as well as to the Green Lane Masjid YouTube channel because of the inshallah ta'ala over or within the next few days our Ramadan program for this year. So just to give you a bit of background on, on why this is a joint session, I do a Tuesday evening tafsir class called Quranic Progression where we are doing a very detailed verse-by-verse verse tafsir of the Qur'an where we started last year. So this is our second year coming to an end now. Alhamdulillah, we started last year by going starting from Surah An-Nas and working our way back in reverse order through the Qur'an. And over those two years, we've done 15 of those small surahs from the last juz of the Qur'an, which should probably give an indication of how much uh, depth and how much detail we went into those surahs of the Qur'an. And what we do from, you know, uh, every so often is we do a QP special. We do a special session where we go through a tafsir book, its methodology and its authors and so on. And we did one previously on Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, over two lessons and its tafsir and its methodology. And one of the things that we're doing this year is, um, or one of the things that I'm doing rather this year, is uh, a Ramadan program going through the whole of tafsir Jalaleen. And Tafsir Jalalain is an amazing book of Tafsir. It's a one-volume summarized book of Tafsir. And so this is the introduction to that, inshallah ta'ala, which will begin at the beginning of Ramadan, the first of Ramadan, whenever that may be. And it will be every single day we do a juz of the Qur'an, and we do it, inshallah ta'ala, in about a three-hour session, which is a reading of the English translation, which is available, of Jalalain. The translation that we're using is the Darul Taqwa translation, uh, the translation by Buli. And then, inshallah ta'ala, once that's, uh, once, as we're reading through that, we're going to be giving a commentary of it where I'm going to be explaining it and so on. So this is, if you like, the precursor to that. This is the introduction to that to understand the significance of this book, the importance of this book, and who the authors were that were behind it. So um, going through this book, Tafsir al-Jalalain, one of the things that you will uh, perhaps know uh, and if you don't, then for, for those of you that have access to people in the Muslim world that go through some type of seminary system, some type of Islamic education, higher level system, the usually the muqarrar or the syllabus that they have in the science of tafsir is tafsir al-jalalain. Because it's a summarized one volume book of tafsir, but also because that's one of the books of tafsir that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given it a level of acceptability amongst the Muslims across the world and throughout the generations. This book was authored, its authors died about 500 years ago or so. And since that time, it's been spread across the world and from Malaysia all the way to the West, to, to the Middle East, to Africa. It is a book that the scholars and the students of knowledge have continuously studied. And that is a sign, inshallah ta'ala, of the sincerity of the authors. And it's a sign, inshallah ta'ala, of the value of this book and what it contains and it is an amazing book of tafsir despite its brevity despite how how summarized it is and it is often uh, you know written just with a few words of explanation after every portion of a verse they just interject a few verses of tafsir despite its brevity 
and despite the very limited words that they added to it, uh, you know, to some extent, uh, some of the scholars that I read that were speaking about Tafsir Jalalin said that they wanted to keep the same number of words that Allah mentioned in the Quran in a surah. They wanted to keep their tafsir to exactly the same number of words used by Allah in the surah. So if Allah uses 500 words in a surah, their tafsir, they wanted to ensure that it doesn't go beyond those 500 words as well. That's something which I heard. It's not something which I literally went and, and, and counted through to see if it was correct or not, but it's something which I have come across. But it is no doubt brief. But despite its brevity, it is extremely rich and deep in its meanings. And inshallah ta'ala, when we go through the methodology in the second part of this lecture, we'll speak about that and how amazing it is. But to begin with, we want to speak about the, the authors. And I say authors because there were two of them. And the word Jalalin means the two Jalals. It is the dual form of the word Jalal, two Jalals. And this wasn't something which they, as we'll come and see, wasn't something which they sat down and agreed to do together. It wasn't a joint project or something as you know we would do if we came together with someone else and said together we're going to sit down and write a book or we're going to do something. This just happened to be that way and it just so happened that both of their names happened to be Jalal. Um, and we'll speak a bit more about that inshallah ta'ala towards the second half when we speak about the methodology of this book. The two authors are uh, the two Jalals, the Jalalain, are student and teacher, or teacher and student. And so we'll begin with the biography of the, of the teacher first. And he is the first Jalal, Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, rahimahullah ta'ala. Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, rahimahullah ta'ala, his full name is Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Ibrahim, al-Shafi'i al-Qahiri al-Ansari. And he's known as Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, and al-Mahalli refers to al-Mahallat uh, al-Kubra, which is an area of Egypt where he was originally from where his ancestors came from even though he himself was born and he lived his life and he passed away in the city of Cairo, the capital of modern-day Egypt. Jalaluddin Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala was born in the year 791 of the Hijrah, 791 of the Hijrah within the city of Qahira or Cairo. And that's where he grew up and that's where he did the majority of his studies and that's where he learned his Islamic sciences and he was known from a young age, and as he aged, as he went through that process of seeking knowledge, he was known for his intellect, he was known for his understanding, he was known for his memorization, and he was someone which other scholars would praise because of his level of intellect and his level of, of understanding of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam Jalaluddin al-Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala, as we said, he grew up in Cairo, that's where he lived, that's where he studied, and he studied all of the sciences of Islam from the scholars of Egypt. From amongst his most famous scholars, and perhaps the one, uh, the name that if I was to drop would be the most recognizable, because he has many, uh, but not all of them would be well known, and not all of them are, are names that we are familiar with, or unless you're someone who's uh, researching into, into the scholars of that era. But the famous scholar amongst them, or the one or two amongst them that are very famous, uh, firstly is Al-Hafid ibn Hajar al-Asqalani rahimahullah ta'ala, the great Imam and Hafid and scholar of Hadith. He was one of the teachers of Jalaluddin al-Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala. And so that should show you automatically just by understanding who the teacher is, the level of the student if he even reaches up to somewhere close to that level of his, of his teacher. Um, and from amongst his teachers also was the famous Imam Sirajuddin ibn al-Mulaqin. And these are scholars generally who have a, a excel in the science of hadith. So Ibn Hajar ta'ala is known as one of the giants of the science of hadith. Ibn al-Mulaqin ta'ala also, um, he has a, 
uh, a number of books in hadith and a number of explanations of books of hadith rahimahumullah ta'ala one of his other teachers is a sheikh and imam by the name of sirajuddin al-bilqini rahimahumullahu ajma'in the point of this being that jalaluddin al-mahalli is someone who in that era was very well known despite after that era other than this book of his which is tafsirul jalalain he's not someone who is um, known he's not someone who you would hear his name very often uh, it is normally his student which is jalaluddin al-suyuti that is the more famous one and the most the more well known one and whose books have become widespread and and well read and studied jalaluddin al-mahalli rahimahullah is the teacher he's not so famous and he's not so well known and his name isn't uh, so familiar to people but in his time he was known as a leading scholar of of his era and he was from the leading scholars of Egypt in the Shafi'i madhab because both him and As-Suyuti rahimahumullah they are of the Shafi'i madhab and this is something which is very clear in the tafsir if you read the tafsir they often when they come to stating any fiqh opinions that they mention they clearly state the position of the madhab of Imam Shafi'i rahimahullahu ta'ala Al-Imam Jalaluddin al-Mahalli rahimahullah was known for his amazing character. He was known for his humility, his humbleness, his zuhud, his, um, you know, his ascetism. His, uh, he was someone who didn't like to get involved with the rulers. He was someone who when he was offered positions of, of responsibility, for example, he was offered to become the judge of Egypt in his time, which in and of itself shows to you the level of his knowledge and it shows to you um, the level of, of um, ilm and knowledge that he had rahimahullah ta'ala but al-mahalli uh, rahimahullah ta'ala when he was given that position or offered that position at least he responded and he said that I don't have the ability to be presented to the fire meaning that I don't want to be someone who has that threat of punishment over me that perhaps Allah will punish me with the fire of hell and so this was something which um, he was very conscious of, rahimahullah ta'ala. And it said that during his time, despite all of those offers, that the rulers of that time considered him to be a person of that level, of that stature, of that knowledge, that they wanted him to come and they wanted him to have that level of knowledge. He, rahimahullah ta'ala, himself refused to take those positions of responsibility. And Al-Imam Al-Suyuti, rahimahullah, who's the student, who's the second Jalaluddin, he says concerning his teacher Al-Mahalli, he says that he was an amazing man who if you looked at his character, you looked at his knowledge, you looked at his mannerisms, his etiquettes, he was someone who followed the path of the Salaf. He's one of those scholars, even though you know we're talking about the seven, eight hundreds uh, of the Hijrah, so he's very far from the early generations, but he was someone who followed in their footsteps, known for someone who was following in that methodology of the pious scholars of the past. And Imam Jalaluddin Al-Mahalli, Rahimahullah Ta'ala became very ill in the year 863 of the Hijrah, so in his 70s. As he approached and reached his 70s, he became extremely ill, and that illness would continue with him for approximately um, a few months, six or seven months, or four, five, six months. And then in the, at the beginning of the year 864 of the Hijrah, he passed away, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He passed away, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. It is said that he was aged at the time of passing was 72. The age, his age and the time of passing was 72, rahimahullah ta'ala. In Gregorian uh, calendar conversion, 864 would roughly approximate to 1459. So in the year 1459, that is when he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala. The second Jalal, who is the student, Jalaluddin, 
is the more famous of the two and his name is Jalaluddin al-Suyuti. His full name is Jalaluddin ibn Abdurrahman, uh, Jalaluddin Abdurrahman ibn Kamal al-Din al-Suyuti rahimahullah and it's also said al-Suyuti, al-Suyuti and al-Suyuti. Both of them are correct because both of them again refer to the place where his father and his ancestors came from even though he like his teacher was also born and lived uh, and resided and then passed away in Cairo the capital of Egypt but originally one came from Mahalli Al-Mahalla and one came from a place called Asyut so that's why it's called Asyuti and Suyuti and this is in somewhere in the the Midlands the Midlands of Egypt this place Asyut his father, Rahimullah Ta'ala, Imam Al-Suyuti's father was a well-known scholar of his era also. And he was someone who was known for his fiqh and to be an imam from amongst the scholars of the Shafi'i madhab of his era, of his time. And he was someone who was recognized amongst the scholars of his time to be a scholar amongst them. But he would pass away when Imam Al-Suyuti, Rahimullah, was relatively young. He was only four, five, six years old when his father passed away. But he came from a family of knowledge and a family of learning and a family of people who studied. Al-Imam Al-Suyuti was born in the month of Rajab in the year 849, 849 of the Hijrah. And it said in some of his biographies, um, an interesting story concerning his birth. It said that his mother was pregnant with him. And when she, she her husband, Imam Al-Suyuti's father, wanted her to pass him a book. He wanted a book from his library because he was doing some studying or some research or some reading. And so she went to the library to fetch a book for her husband and that's where she went into labor. And it is said that's where she gave birth to Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah. And Imam al-Suyuti was born therefore in a library according to that narration. And it is said that as a young child he would have the nickname Ibn al-Kutub, the son of books. Right? Ibn al-Kutub, the son of books because of him being born in a library. What's interesting about that is that Imam al-Suyuti, as we will see, is one of the most pro prolific authors of Islamic books in our history. According to some scholars and some historians, he wrote the most books amongst any of the scholars of Islam. And so he was born in a library, you know, which obviously is a coincidental thing, and he's given this nickname of being the son of books, and it's something which sticks with him, and it's something which, which affects him, and it's something which he would then later dedicate his life to, to authoring all of these books, alihi rahmatullah. Another interesting thing about his birth is if you look at his year of birth, 849, and his teacher's death, 862, you see that the difference between Jalaluddin al-Mahalli rahimahullah being born, uh, be, uh, passing away, and Imam al-Suyuti's birth is only about 15 or 16 years. So Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah, we take from this a couple of things. Number one is that he started seeking of knowledge very young. And Imam al-Suyuti, it is said, as we will mention, he memorized the Qur'an when he was like six, seven, eight, as well as a number of other books. And that's when he started to seek knowledge. In fact, some of his biographers say that he authored his first, not book, but like a treatise, like a very small pamphlet at the age of eight or nine. That's when he authored his first you know, book, for lack of a better word, or a very small note that he wrote, a, a waraqa, a few pages on a certain issue at that age of eight, nine, or ten years old. So he's very young by the time his teacher passes away. So he's studying with him, Al-Imam Jalaluddin al-Mahalli rahimahullah, and he's in his early to mid-teens. He's in his early to mid-teens, rahimahumullahu ajma'in. 
Al-Imam Al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala, when his teacher Al-Mahalli passes away, is 15 or 16, which makes him from amongst the most junior students of Jalaluddin Al-Mahalli. Not from his senior students, not someone who spent decades with him. He spent most likely only a few years with him. And it's said that one of the things that Imam Suyuti rahimahullah used to like to do with his teachers is that he would stick with them until they passed away. So he wasn't a person who spent a few months here with one teacher, then go to the next one, a few months, then move to the third one. He wasn't someone who just com- continuously changed and jumped between teachers. But he would stick to his sheikh as much as he could until that sheikh, you know, at some point passes away or something happens and he moves away or something, and then he moves to the next one. And that was his way of seeking knowledge. So Imam Al-Suyuti is one of the youngest students of Al-Imam uh, Al-Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala. And so that's also an interesting point because when we, when we go on to speak about his tafsir and how Al-Imam Al-Suyuti completes the tafsir of his teacher, it is a, a poignant point to remember that he does this at a relatively young age. Right? At a relatively young age, rahimahullah ta'ala. But anyway, going back to Al-Imam Al-Suyuti and his upbringing, as we said, his father passed away when he was very young. And instead, what he then did and or what his mother pushed him to do was to seek knowledge. And so he spent his young years seeking knowledge. It said that he memorized the Quran around the age of six or seven or eight. And then he started to memorize the, the matun, the, the general texts of Islamic learning. So, for example, the text in, a text in fiqh and a text in Arabic grammar and a text in hadith and so on, as was and still is the method of seeking knowledge amongst the students of knowledge. Al-Imam Jalaluddin al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala, from a young age, his teachers and the elders, the scholars who were older than him in his his area could see within him that level of genius, that level of knowledge, that level of astuteness, that level of, of understanding, that level of intellect. They could see within him that he has the makings of becoming a great scholar. And Al-Imam Al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala says that from amongst the people who really helped me to ground me was a, an imam of that time known as Ibn al-Hammam al-Hanafi. And Ibn al-Hammam is a famous scholar amongst the, 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 um, the Hanafi madhab. And his book, Fathul al-Qadir, is one of the major books of the Hanafi fiqh madhab. The Hanafi madhab in fiqh, it is called Fathul al-Qadir, Sharh al-Hidayah. Ibn al-Hammam, who is the author of this book, was much older than Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala. But when he saw him, he grounded him. He says that he was someone who kept me away from becoming too close to the rulers or becoming one of the scholars who just goes into, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, into government work. So he becomes a judge or he becomes a mufti or he becomes takes some type of position. He kept him back from this. And he told him, you study and you learn and you take your time and you seek knowledge and you do more and more and more. And he says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Suyuti, he says, and that's something which grounded me, which shows the importance when we seek knowledge to always have those people who are older than us, wiser than us, people who are more mature than us, people who are more experienced than us, as was the way of the scholars of the past. The scholars of the past never had this idea of graduation. You know, that we have now, someone goes to an institute, whether in the UK or outside or abroad, they study five, six, seven years, they come back and they're done and they're dusted. They never had that concept. They stuck with their teachers until their teachers passed away, as we saw from our teachers. 
till today, it is still the method of the scholars and the students of knowledge that their teachers who are older than them, they refer to them, they take their advice, they seek their counsel, they continue to read and study and benefit and learn to them until their teachers pass away and until that generation passes away by the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This concept that you do a few years and then you stop and then you go away and you've learnt everything and you don't need to study anymore, you don't read anymore or you don't have those people who are older and maturer than you that you constantly refer back to is a false concept and it is not a concept that a student of knowledge benefits from. It's not something which is from the ways and the taraiq, the methods of seeking knowledge amongst the scholars of the past. And Imam Suyuti appreciates that there's someone older than him that's telling him, hold on, don't do this and do that. Be careful, don't go down this path, take that path. Take my advice as someone older, more experienced and more senior and that is what he does, rahimahullah ta'ala. So instead, Imam Suyuti will travel the world. He will go to Mecca and he will go to Medina and he will go to Yemen and he will go to Asham. He will go to Damascus and he will go to, uh, it is said, even India and towards Andalus. And he traveled the whole world seeking knowledge. And he became from the greatest scholars of his time, especially in the field of hadith and tafsir. His knowledge of hadith, he said concerning himself in one of his uh, statements, Rahimahullah Suyuti said, I memorized 200,000 hadith. And I only stopped at 200,000 because I couldn't find more. Had I found more, I would have continued. Meaning that all of the teachers that I went to, those are the hadith that they narrated to me. Why? Because in those days, books are still not as widespread and as easily accessible as they are to us today. You go to a teacher, he narrates from you his books, or he gives to you his books, or he narrates to you the hadith that is memorized from his teachers. And so this is what he's memorizing, rahimahullah ta'ala. And that is an aspect that is very clear in his section of the tafsir especially. Rahimahullah ta'ala, he is someone who has an amazing depth of knowledge concerning the ahadith of the Prophet wasallam and the narrations of the companions and the early scholars of Islam, which is an essential prerequisite to doing tafsir, of making tafsir of the Qur'an. You have to be someone who is well-versed in what the Prophet wasallam said in his sunnah concerning the Qur'an and concerning more than the Qur'an because how much of the Qur'an is to do with everyday aspects and etiquettes and manners and akhirah and tawheed and so many other aspects that you must know what the Prophet wasallam said and did concerning that as well as the statements of the companions and the early scholars because they, as we know, supplement that they are people who come and they help with that alihim rahmatullahi ajma'in. So Imam al-Suyuti is someone who travels and Imam al-Suyuti is someone who goes and he, he goes to these places and he studies and he studies until he becomes this amazing scholar in his own night, rahimahullahu ta'ala. From amongst his most famous teachers and, and imams and, and, and scholars is, as we said, Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, rahimahullahu ta'ala, Ibn al-Hammam al-Hanafi is considered to be from amongst them. And there are others like al-Manawi and al-Bilqini and others. Uh, he has a, a great number of teachers that he that he studied with, rahimahullah ta'ala. One of the things that is interesting about his life, rahimahullah ta'ala, is that he continued to study and teach. And this was his method, as was the method of the scholars of that time. And every time they study and they teach, they learn and they teach. They seek knowledge and they teach it to others. Until he came to the age of approximately 40. And when he reached the age of 40, he made a decision that he would stop teaching and that he would stick to his home and that he would research and write, he would author. So he would stop teaching and he would author. And obviously that's at a time when there's many other scholars around and access to knowledge is still very easy and it's very open. 
He's not in a situation where he's the only one or there's only two or three of them. Or if he stops, there's no one else left. Or he leaves a great gap if he stops. There are many others. And he thought to himself that I want to spend my time writing and re leaving that legacy of books and of preserving knowledge in written form so that it can be continued to pass on to others after him. And that's what he did until he would pass away some 50 odd years later in his 90s, rahimahullah ta'ala. And that's why you have the statement of the scholars. His students say that he wrote over 600 works, from major works, meaning multiple volumes, to small books, one volume, to small pamphlets, 600 works. And some biographers put it closer to a thousand or even more than a thousand that he wrote within his lifetime. And no doubt that the scholars of the past, Allah Azza wa Jal gave, him, gave them the barakah, the blessing, the ability, the tawfiq, the, um, you know, just the, the grace that he gave to them subhanahu wa ta'ala to be able to do that within a relatively short space of time. There were scholars who only lived for in the, till their 40s or early 50s like the likes of Imam Shafi'i and Nawawi and others and they left behind an amazing legacy rahimahumullahu ajma'in because Allah gave them that barakah and through their sincerity Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved their knowledge and their legacy. Al-Imam Al-Suyuti lives much longer, he lives till his 90s. But he wrote nearly a thousand works, or even if you say six, seven hundred. It's an amazing legacy to leave back and to leave for others who will come after him, alayhi rahmatullahi ta'ala. So this was something which, um, you know, which he spent the vast majority of his life dedicating himself to, that he wanted to spend his life seeking, not only uh, seeking that knowledge, but then preserving it and writing it down for others. And he had a number of famous students during his time. The scholars of his time, his students and his peers and those who came after him uh, often call him the Imam, Shaykh al-Islam. And Shaykh al-Islam is a title that's given to someone who's an expert in all of the fields of Islam. He's someone who is a master and, a, and, and an authority in all of the various fields of Islam. He's been given that laqab or that title of being Shaykh al-Islam. And Imam al-Suyuti said about himself that I excelled in a number of fields. I excelled in fiqh and in hadith and in tafsir and in Arabic grammar and in and in uh, and in uh, balagha in eloquence and in the sciences of the Arabic language. And he says this about himself, and it is something which is clear in his writings. If you go through any of his books that is written, and we'll mention some of them, some of the more well-known and famous ones, it is amazing to see his depth of knowledge, rahimahullah taala, and that's considering that he came some nine hundred years after the Prophet ﷺ, after the time of the companions, which shows that Allah gives people that ability, irrespective of whichever time or generation that they come in. It is possible that Allah can give to someone that blessing, that ability, that, uh, that barakah within their time, that they can take and seek knowledge and write and bring about a legacy that is lasting for the generations that will come after them by the permission of Allah this concept that it's only Imam Malik and Abu Hanifa and Ahmad and Shafi'i and Al-Bukhari and that generation within the first three, four centuries of Islam, they're left behind an amazing legacy and then after that, it can't. no. In fact, if anything, you see the legacy of the likes of Ibn Al-Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Hajar and As-Siyuti and many others who come after them and even within our time, some of the more well-known scholars of our time, uh, Sheikh Al-Baz and Sheikh Al-Bani and others, Rahimahumullah, they left that legacy and Allah Azza wa Jal can give a person that ability to do that. And that's something which should give us the motivation. It should give us that, uh, that, 
that inshallah that hope from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we can be from amongst those people if we have that sincerity and if we're willing to put in that hard time and effort and dedicate ourselves to knowledge as those scholars did to dedicate yourself to traveling across the world to memorizing 200,000 hadith Imam Suyuti doesn't just author a nearly a thousand books because he didn't put any time or effort into it it is a lifetime of passion and dedication and sacrifice that he has that makes him one of the most well-known and famous scholars of Islam rahimahullah ta'ala Al-Imam Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala has many statements amongst the scholars of his time and others who came and they spoke about him um, and you know they spoke about his about his knowledge and so on. He has a number of famous books that I I want to just briefly touch upon just to show you his 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 breadth and and depth of knowledge. Rahimahullah Taala. From amongst them is the book that we're going to be reading, Inshallah Taala, in the month of Ramadan, and that is uh, the book which is called Tafsirul Jalalain. Tafsirul Jalalain. And if anything, that's one of his one of his earlier works and it's one of his shorter works another famous book of his in tafsir is called ad-durr al-manthur and ad-durr al-manthur is his main work in tafsir so as-suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala as we mentioned writes tafsir al-jalalain to finish off the work of his teacher rahimahullah ta'ala who passed away and was able to complete his tafsir as-suyuti's actual own work in tafsir is called ad-durr al-manthur and it's a number of volumes it is a large one of the larger works of tafsir that's available and it is a tafsir that's dedicated more or less to tafsir bil athar of narrating and collating the narrations of tafsir from the Prophet ﷺ, from the companions, from the tabi'een and the early scholars of Islam. And for those of you that have been attending QP, my QP students, you'll know that we've spoken about the different methodologies of tafsir. Uh, and by the way, for the rest of you, QP, the portal Quranic Progression, is a free portal that you can access from QuranicProgression.org. All our lectures are there, all the lessons. Um, all the notes that have been transcribed, all the podcasts, if you want to listen to them just in audio format. It is something that we've spoken about extensively, the methodology of the scholars of tafsir. So Imam Suyuti, ta'ala, and which again shows to you his level and depth of knowledge of narrations to come 900 years, or you know even five, six, seven hundred years after those generations finish, and still be quoting them and mentioning them with often the books that they're found in, with their complete chains of narration back to the 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 uh, the people who speak or from the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it is an amazing treasure of knowledge, and it is something which the scholars of tafsir continue to use and continue to be, uh, to benefit from. One of his other works in the science of uh, of Quran generally in the sciences of Quran is his book Al Itqan fi Ulum al Quran, which is a book that he wrote concerning the sciences of the Quran. So the sciences of the Quran are not tafsir per se. But they are the sciences that surround the Quran. So, for example, how to differentiate between a surah that was revealed as a Makki surah or a Madani surah, uh, the different qiraat of the Quran, the different um, you know methods of, of, of Arabic language that are used within the Quran, all of the different sciences, you know, abrogation in the Quran, all of those different sciences that are part of the wider remit of Quranic study. This is one of the most famous books that he wrote, Rahimahullah Taala, concerning this field. Al-Itqan fi ulum al-Qur'an And if you speak about ulum al-Qur'an and the science of the Qur'an generally, Al-Itqan is one of the premier references and sources within that science. Also from his famous works is Tadrib al-Rawi, which is a book in hadith and in the sciences of hadith, which is a well-known uh, book of hadith that is widely studied till this day and is widely 
revered and considered to be a leading work within that science as well. He has other books in fiqh, Jum'ul Jawam, and as we said, both him and his teacher were people who followed the Shafi'i madhab in general. They people who followed the usul of the Shafi'i madhab, alayhim rahmatullah. And he has many other works as well, rahimahullah ta'ala. He passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, in the year 911 of the Hijrah. It said that he was ill for about a week, severely, before he would finally pass away in the in the year 911 of the Hijrah. And it said that thousands of people came out to pray his janazah and they had to lead his janazah multiple times because simply because of the numbers of people that were unable to pay them pray at any single time. So a jama'ah would come and they would lead and the graveyard or wherever it was would be filled and they would leave and then the next group would come and they would leave and so on because of the number of people that came out to pray his janazah. Rahimahullah ta'ala, he died in the year 911, approximately in his early 90s. Rahimahullah ta'ala. So these are briefly the two authors of this book, the Jalalin. When it comes to the actual tafsir itself and the methodology of this tafsir, a number of points. The first thing to remember is that the name Al-Jalalain is not the name that they gave to this tafsir. So Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti and Jalal al-Din al-Mahalli, the teacher, didn't name this book themselves. They didn't give it a name. And it is said that it was Imam al-Suyuti's students that gave the name to this book. And they gave it a name, and Allah knows best, but it seems like they just gave it a name in order for it to be able to be recognizable so that people would know what they're referring to. And so they just came up with the name Jalalin because the two authors, both of them, their name is Jalaluddin, the two Jalals. And so they just came up with the name Tafsir al-Jalalin or one or two of them did, and then it stuck. And what would happen in that in those times is when people would write a book, you would have Nusakh. Nusakh are people who copy the text out. They're, you know, they're the old version of a photocopier. People would come by hand, they write the book out, and they send it to different parts of the world and sold and spread across the world. That's how they would do it in the olden days before printing presses became common common practice and commonplace and then books obviously took on a different meaning. And that's why you will find in many of these old manuscripts of the books of Hadith and so on, sometimes errors in the way that a person has copied the work and so on. And that's what the scholars do when they come to edit these works and verify them is that they will have multiple manuscripts. And they will c- compare between those manuscripts when something seems like it's inc- incorrect or something seems like there's been a mistake or a word has been added or taken away or, or, or put forward or put back or whatever. That's what they're doing. They're going through those very old manuscripts and they're, com- and they're, they're uh, comparing between them. So, but Imam Siyuti, when he finished his tafsir, it is one of those works that was spread wide and far in his lifetime and after his lifetime, rahimahullah ta'ala. But he never named his book. And the reason why he didn't name his book is because it was originally not his book. It was a book written by his, his teacher, Jalaluddin al-Mahalli. And Jalaluddin al-Mahalli, rahimahullah ta'ala, began this tafsir towards the end of his life. It said towards the last five, six years of his life. And Jalal al-Din al-Mahalli, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he begins his tafsir of the Qur'an, he began from Surah Al-Kahf. Right? He began from Surah Al-Kahf. That's where he began his tafsir from. Just like, you know, we've chosen in QP to begin from Surah Nas and work our way backwards through the Qur'an, he for some reason chose to begin at Surah Al-Kahf, which is more or less the halfway point of the Qur'an. And he started from Surah Al-Kahf and he completed the last half of the Qur'an in tafsir. And then he went back and he did the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha. He did the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha. And then he passed away, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he passed away, uh, as we said, 
five, six years towards the end of his life, he's writing this tafsir and then he passes away after Surah Al-Fatiha. Now, what would normally happen when that takes place is either the book, if people you know wanted it and wanted to spread it and so on, either it's left as it was and it's spread or one of their students comes and they complete it. And for a student to come and complete the work of the Sheikh is rare within Islamic heritage. It's not the norm. And how many books were written and left and not completed by students who would come later because to take up a Sheikh's work and to understand what he wanted and how he wanted it and what position he was in and what, he, what his goals were. And so, it's very difficult to do for someone to come even for a close student. And that's why you don't have many examples within our heritage of students coming and finishing the works of their teachers. In, you know, in uh, some of the examples that do exist, it's like Al-Majmu' of Imam Al-Nawawi. Al-Majmu' is his major work of Shafi'i Fiqh. And he passed away, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, before he could complete it. So a subki came and he completed that work. Adwa'u uh, al-Bayan of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shawqiti, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous tafsir work, which for those of you who are my QP students, we refer to it often. It's one of those amazing books that does tafsir of the Qur'an with other verses of the Qur'an. It uses the Qur'an to make tafsir of itself. Al-Imam uh, Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin rahimahullah, passed away with three or four juz left of that work. And his student Muhammad Atiyah Salim rahimahullah, came and he finished that work for him. But that is rare for that to happen. And even when it does happen within our history, you will often find a very clear difference between the writing styles and between the levels of knowledge and between the approach of tafsir or whatever it may be of fiqh because it is a completely new individual with a completely you know, different level of understanding and, and knowledge and everything else, it is a completely different thing for someone to be able to come and continue that book within that way. It is extremely difficult to do. And that's why Shaykh Atiyah Salim, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he picks up from where his teacher leaves off, one of the first things that he mentions is he apologizes. That he can't continue the tafsir of Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin rahimahullah in the same way, with the same level, in the same depth, with the same eloquence. Because he says, I am nowhere near that level of knowledge that my teacher had rahimahumullah ajma'een. They have all passed away alayhim rahmatullah. Al-Imam al-Suyuti though, does. Not only does he finish that book and it is one of the most amazing services that a student can do to their teacher. It's one of the most amazing, uh, you know, uh, forms of respect that a student can show to their teacher that they find something that they left behind and they print it and they bring it out and they leave it so that it becomes a legacy for them and for their teacher before them and in our time we have examples of students coming and taking their teacher's works maybe that were audio and transcribing the notes and printing them and so on right just as we in QP rahimahullah have a very dedicated team of sisters who every week take the lecture uh, the audio and they put it down into um, notes and they transcribe it all of those notes that you find on the portal are people who are doing that that is one of the most amazing forms of respect and khidmah that a person can do for their teacher and it is one of the ama most amazing ways of leaving behind a legacy that is hard enough but then to take that work and to continue in the same way with the same methodology in the same style as your teacher is doubly hard but al-imam al-suyuti ta'ala more or less does the same it is if you didn't know that it was written by two different authors and you didn't know where one stopped and when one started, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, I don't think, and Allah knows best. And that's not just me saying that, having, having read this tafsir, but it's many people that I went back to 
from early scholars and modern scholars, everyone kind of more or less seems to have that same opinion. That it's very difficult to understand, unless, other than the fact that we know where one died and when the next one came and continued. Other than that reason, it wouldn't be something which people would be able to uh, understand. And that's because Imam Siyuti, and that's a testament to his knowledge, it's a testament to his understanding, it's a testament to his intellect, to be able to take the approach and the methodology of his teaching to continue it on, it is a testament to him, rahimahullahu ta'ala, and that's what makes this work amazing. In the fact that you have two people, they never agreed that this would be the case, they never partnered up, they never agreed on a single methodology, they never, but rather what he did is he continued on the methodology of his sheikh, alayhi rahmatullah, and that's one of the reasons why, if you go to the Arabic, the English for some reason, I don't know why, the translators didn't include the introductions of a Suyuti and so on. Al-Imam Jalaluddin Mahalli, because he passed away after Surah Al-Fatiha, never wrote an introduction, nor the conclusion to his book, nor did he name it, because he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Imam Suyuti comes and his introduction to his portion of tafsir begins at the beginning of Al-Baqarah. And so if you didn't know this and you were to read it, you would seem, it seems strange. Fatiha is there with no introduction, then all of a sudden there's an introduction before Baqarah. And the conclusion is at the end of Surah Al-Isra, before Surah Al-Kahf, and this is the reason why. So Imam Suyuti did this, but because he's continuing on from where his teacher left off, he doesn't give it a name, and he doesn't you know, think that it's his place to put the introduction before Fatiha, because that's not what he did, that's his teacher, nor did he go back and change what his teacher did, but in fact he mentions within his own introduction that I will continue upon the methodology of my Sheikh. And remember what we said, this is one of his junior students. Imam Suyuti is a junior student, right? And he's not someone who shows to you his level of knowledge even at that age to not think that, oh no, it's, you know, I'm going to change and I don't agree with that opinion and I think he could have done this and done that and so on. Even though within his own tafsir, sometimes you can tell that he's disagreed with some of the opinions of his teacher because he will phrase them differently to the way that his teacher has phrased them, rahimahumullah. But he doesn't overtly say this and it's not something which you pick up unless you read the tafsir with very careful and deliberate reading and you pay attention to those nuances and those differences those differences so al-imam al-suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala that's one of the reasons why it's not it doesn't have a name officially and tafsir jalalain it became known for afterwards in fact it is said that imam al-suyuti when he refers to the tafsir in his own works he would refer to it as the tafsir of my sheikh or his tafsir al-kabir, the major work of tafsir from my sheikh. And he would himself give it a name, but it was a name that then just stuck after he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, and after it was spread uh, across the Muslim world. Another thing to, to understand from this, um, from the the way that Imam Suyuti continues with the methodology of his teacher, is as we said that Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala wrote his portion, his half of the tafsir, towards the end of his life. And Al-Imam Al-Siyuti rahimahullah ta'ala wrote his portion of his tafsir some six or seven years after the death of his teacher. So after Al-Mahalli passes away six or seven years later, Imam Al-Siyuti picks up this work and he thinks, you know what, I should complete this. And he does. Because he sees within it the benefit. And he sees within it the great value of having a tafsir that is short and concise. As opposed to the in Al-Qurtubi and Al-Tabari and those multi-volume books of tafsir. That unless you are a student of knowledge or a scholar or someone who has that passion for reading that type of work in tafsir. It's not going to be something which you're going to be spending your you know your days and your months and your, your years reading and studying. So he saw the value of it and he continued. He does this six or seven years after his teacher passes away. If, 
if a Siyuti is 15, 16, when his teacher passes away, five, six, seven years later means that he's in his early 20s. So this is from the earlier works of Imam Siyuti. Imam Siyuti dies in his 90s, rahimahullah. So this is done at an early stage. And Imam Siyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentions in his, in, in, the, in his own introduction to this tafsir, that he began with the tafsir at the beginning of Ramadan in the year 870. 870 of the Hijrah. So Imam Mahali, as we said, died in 864. So some seven years afterwards, 870, in the month of Ramadan at the very beginning, he begins writing his half of the tafsir. And he says, and I finished it on the 11th of Shawwal of the same year, meaning about 40 days. Right, in about approximately 40 days, he finishes his half of the tafsir, which again shows to you not only his level of knowledge and so on, but also it shows to you um, the, uh, you know, his, his ability, his stamina, his uh, work ethic in terms of being able to do that type of writing within that short period of time. And there were scholars of the past, you know, if you go through books, there were scholars who, who finished their works within a very short period of time or on a single journey, like Imam ibn Qayyim said that he wrote Zadul Ma'ad, his, his famous book, on his journey to Hajj and back. And that's something which you know which scholars used to do. Rahimahullah, they would have that portion of time that they would dedicate to this. Imam Siyuti, within the month of Ramadan, and 10 days or so afterwards, 40 odd days, he finishes his half of the tafsir. And it's done when he's at a young age. Right? This is relatively his, he's still at the beginning of his life as a scholar and as a person who is um, studying in this in this field. And Imam Siyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, and generally just from studying their um, tafsir, we can see their methodology. And their methodology is their methodology is to do the following. And this is something which they mention themselves, rahimahumullah ta'ala. Their methodology is to make tafsir easy and accessible to the average Muslim. That's the methodology. And at the same time, to build within the student of knowledge, so it's good for the average person, but for the student of knowledge to develop within them the ability, the skill of tafsir. So they don't just want them to, to read the tafsir or to take on the tafsir, they want them to be able to develop the skill of tafsir, of understanding the, the work of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the book of Allah azza wa jal, of understanding Allah's words and his speech, of understanding how to approach the Quran, what is the methodology by which we make tafsir of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the tafsir is amazing. If you were to read, especially the Arabic, the English does this, the translation does it to some extent as well. It is easier to do in the Arabic. So it's not because the translators have fallen short in that regard. The English language just doesn't lend itself to being able to do the type of tafsir that they have done. But if you go back to the original Arabic, it is called tafsirul mamzuj, which basically means it is a mixed tafsir. So what they do is they will say, for example, if it's at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah or even Surah Fatiha, Alhamdu, and then they will explain what it means, Lillahi, and then explain Rabbil Alameen. So what they're doing is they're inserting their tafsir within the verse itself, as opposed to what's common in Al-Qurtubi and Al-Tabari and many others, Ibn Kathir, is that they mention the whole verse completely, or sometimes even a passage, a few verses, and then they give you the tafsir of that verse or of those verses. Mahalli and Suyuti don't do that. What they do is they mid-sentence, they break up the verse and they give it to you as they go along. And that's why you will find within it that they will mention a word 
and then they will say to you, they will give you some linguistic benefit, or some eloquence benefit, or some hadith benefit, or some fiqh benefit, or some qiraat benefit, and so on, midway. And that is their methodology of doing tafsir. Number one, to make it easy for people to understand, because tafsir is a higher level than just reading the translation of the meanings of the Qur'an, because what essentially the translator is doing, and this is something which we've mentioned multiple times, is that they're giving to you uh, a, a tafsir of sorts as well, they're choosing an opinion that they consider to be correct, and that's what they're translating. Because the Qur'an is so deep and rich in its meanings, that it's not just possible to give a word-for-word, like-for-like translation of the Qur'an. What tafsir does is it opens up to you that depth, opens up to you that treasure of what is the tafsir of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what they do there is that they make it easy for the average person who wants to, and obviously average, when we say average, we mean for that time, as always with these works, when the scholars wrote, they wrote for the people of that time, and the people generally were more uh, clued up, and they had a better level of Arabic knowledge, and more connection with the Quran, and so it's things that maybe today, we would still consider to be very advanced for the average person, and if you were to take uh, Jalalain and just read it, it's sometimes maybe not the easiest thing to read now, but remember that it's written for a different time, it's written for, uh, you know, like your average, or your beginning student of knowledge, and for people who are generally more, uh, aware of their religion and more clued up in terms of the Quran but also what it is especially for students of knowledge and especially for people who have that passion you really want to take your Quran learning to the next level and that's one of the reasons why we chose this book for the tafsir in Ramadan not only because it's nice and, and well concise as concise can be in the Quran it's still you know relatively long but it's as concise as you will get in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but at the same time for those of you that are more serious and especially for my QP students who have now done two years of tafsir and they've understood some of the methodologies that we've been mentioning and so on, you will see how that all comes together. Because sometimes when you take one verse and you go into so much depth, you the depth within it sometimes makes it difficult for you to appreciate the overall tafsir of that passage or of that verse because you are breaking it down into so many things. right? And that is sometimes a difficult thing to, to process for us when we go into that level of detail. The beautiful thing about Jalalain is that he won't go into that level of depth. But what he will give to you is keys. He will give you a key for every single verse. And you know, some of the scholars who commented on this tafsir, they said that there's hardly two or three verses go back except that there's keys and principles and, and etiquettes and knowledge and benefits that you can take from the tafsir of these two great imams, alayhim rahmatullahi ajma'in. So that's their methodology of their tafsir. That is the purpose of their tafsir. And how do they do that? What's their methodology? Honestly, it's amazing. For them to be able to do within this tafsir that is so concise, they have included more or less within it every single science of the Qur'an. They have included within it Makki and Madani. They have included in it the science of the of the number of verses, Addul Ay. They have included within it Qira'at, and that's something which we will see, even if you read the English translation, one of the, the good things that the translators did is that they kept the Qira'at variances to the best of their ability within their translation, even though they removed a lot of the Arabic grammar and stuff from it, and that's you know understandable because it is difficult therefore to translate and difficult to understand unless you have that, and even to explain unless you have a good level of Arabic, of Arabic knowledge and understanding. So they removed some of that stuff, but they kept the Qira'at in which they could have removed, but they kept it in, and that's something which is good that they did, because it's something which they really focus on. as Suyuti really focuses, and Al-Mahalli, on the Qira'at. And the Qira'at that they used, 
uh, isn't the qira'ah of hafs. It's not the qira'ah that we read the Qur'an in. It's not the normal qira'ah. The qira'ah that they mostly use in their tafsir is the qira'ah of Abu Amr al-Basri, which is a Susi and a Duri. And they mention a lot of Ibn Kathir and Nafi' and Abu Ja'far. These are the main qira'ahs that they base their tafsir on. And that's you know a, a nuance that maybe in the English language isn't so apparent, but in the Arabic, it is definitely there. And that's why when they refer to some of the tafsir, Sometimes it may be confusing unless you understand that actually what they're referring to is that particular qira'ah and how that word corresponds to that qira'ah within that specific verse. And that's just the way that they did their tafsir because the qira'ah of Hafs hadn't yet reached Egypt in the time of those two imams. It would come later on and become the predominant qira'ah as it did then across most of the world. So one of the things that they focus on is the qira'at. Another thing that they focus on is gharib al-Qur'an the unfamiliar words of the Qur'an, the words that may have multiple meanings or the words that are difficult to understand even for Arabic speakers, that's something which they focus on heavily. They focus on Arabic language. They really focus on nahu, which is grammar, balagha, which is eloquence, and asarf, which is morphology. And all of this, by the way, is done within two, three words. So it's not a long paragraph. It's not a long, you know, three, four, five sentence, even though that is done at some points. It is usually a few words. The qira'ah, the difference between this one and that one is this, and that's all they do. They don't tell you the reason why and whatever. That's for you to deal with. And what it's doing is it's giving you the key on the basis that you will take that key and then do your research and learn, which is what the student of tafsir should always do. For those people that are really serious, when you have something like al-jalalain, it's like your matan, it's like your base text, like your syllabus that you study, that you learn, that you memorize. But what you're meant to do is build upon that and have further study and further reading that adds and incorporates to that, inshallah ta'ala. That's one of the things that we're going to try to do with our commentary. But it's obviously going to be limited because of the timing issues and so on and the, and the level of how much we want to do. But actually, if you want to take that as a syllabus, which is why it's studied in a number of Islamic universities across the Muslim world and so on, they don't study Ibn Kathir or anything else. They study Jalalain. Because it has amazing um, you know, gems within it and amazing principles that you can take from it. Another thing that they do within their tafsir is that they focus on, um, as we said, eloquence aspects and so on. Or everything to do with Arabic language, which isn't always available in English translation. Understandably, it's not something which you will constantly see. They have mentioned it sometimes and they have not mentioned it at other times. They have mentioned within their tafsir fiqh, the positions of the fuqaha. And usually very briefly and usually um, mentioning uh, openly or, or very clearly the position of the Shafi'i Madhab and not really going into the differences of opinion and so on. Again, understandably, because it is a brief and concise fiqh. And that's also something which is amazing, which shows to you that they didn't want to leave out any of the sciences that are related to the Qur'an, but they wanted to keep them in, but obviously in a very brief way in order to preserve the main goal of their tafsir. So they mention within it the opinions of fiqh, or at least the position of the Shafi'i Madhab. But what you will find by understanding this principle and this methodology is that this is an issue that therefore is open to further study. If that's the position of the Shafi'i Madhab, then clearly there will be other positions, other madhahib, other scholars, other opinions and so on. And those opinions you will find in the books of fiqh or even in the more comprehensive books of tafsir like Al-Qurtubi and Ibn Kathir and others. One of the other things that they focus on is hadith, mentioning narrations. Now, even though this isn't a hadith that they generally mention the narrations in, 
So they didn't, they won't always say, and this was the opinion of Hassan or Mujahid or Qatada, which for those of you, again, who are my QP students, you will find that that's what we do. When we go into that majdidi, we will say, Al-Hassan al-Basri said this about the verse, Ibn Abbas said this, Ibn Mas'ud said this, Qatada said this, Al-Imam al-Tabari then came and he said this, and Ibn Kathir followed up and said that. That's what we do. But that takes a lot of time and effort and so on. What they did is they mentioned it very briefly. Imam Siyuti in particular is more likely to give you more hadith just because of his level of knowledge and level of, of understanding of this field and how much he had memorized. So he's more likely to mention to you the statements of Ibn Abbas. He's more likely to mention to you a, a hadith in its entirety or the portion of the hadith that pertains to this particular verse that he wants to uh, make a point concerning. He is more likely to do that in his half of the tafsir, which is the first half of the Quran, and that's because he was obviously a uh, you know one of the one of the leading authorities of his time in the science of hadith. But that's something which they also bring within it. In addition to really everything else, they have within it usul, and they have within it issues of aqid, and they have within it so many things that you can bring together. And if you were to really take that time and to study. Honestly, it is something which you could just make as a book that you could study for a number of years, going through each of those works and, and uh, sorry, each of those points and elaborating upon them further. Our purpose, inshallah ta'ala, in the month of Ramadan in the tafsir is primarily to do the reading because there is barakah and there is, I believe, a, a, a lack of understanding of how the Salaf used to approach the science of tafsir. For many of us, our tafsir now has become more contemplations and stories and speakers who come and just say to you, but I think that this is what it refers to and this is how you apply it to your life. And no doubt there is within that some validity and authenticity. But tafsir as a science of tafsir is always primarily based upon the Quran and the Sunnah and the statements of the companions and the early scholars. And if you listen to a tafsir lecture that doesn't mention hardly any of those throughout the entire uh, length of its lecture, that's not tafsir anymore. That is someone's contemplations, which may be correct or incorrect, may be right or not right or wrong or whatever it is, that's something different and it has its own place. And that's for you to build up your iman and to strengthen your iman and so on and so forth. That has its place, but that is not tafsir. And in our time, we have conflated these two issues and confused the two. And there has become no distinction between the two, where now we don't think or we don't understand the tafsir in its noble form that it was uh, you know, something which from the earliest of times from the companions, it is one of those sciences that they most paid attention to. More so than, you know, hadith and, and so on comes later on, even though obviously the companions are the narrators of hadith, but as a science, it is formed much later on, as is also al-fiqh, as are other sciences, but tafsir. You find Umar, and you find Ali, and you find Uthman, and you find Ibn Abbas, and Aisha, and Abu Huraira, and Ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu anhum, and the other companions going into depth concerning this issue because of how important and fundamental it is. So there is barakah. Just reading Jalalain and understanding that approach and understanding the value of what it is and what it offers is in and of itself something which I think is a worthwhile endeavor doing and then especially in the month of Ramadan, may Allah Azza wa give us the ability to witness it. And then to add on to that in commentary and just to clear things and make things clearer and add things and so on, then inshallah ta'ala, I hope that this will be a, a you know a month lying a month long pursuit that is worthwhile inshallah ta'ala and that is blessed and is noble. I want to conclude by mentioning just some of the issues that we will find within Tafsir Jalalain, some of the errors or some of the main issues that are um, that are potential causes of us to stop and to expand upon because there are mistakes in methodology or mistakes in uh, otherwise. 
The first of them is the biggest issue really, um, and the main issue, and that is the issue of the mistakes that they have in some of their aqidah points. Both Isyuti and Al-Mahalli, rahimahumullah, are scholars who used to make ta'wil al-sifat. So when it came to the name and attributes of Allah, they had a tendency to misinterpret them, as was common in that time and in that era and amongst people of that generation, because that madhab and that methodology and that kind of creed of misinterpreting Allah's names or trying to remove them from their correct meaning was something which was prevalent of that time. And this doesn't detract from the scholars in terms of their knowledge and their level. And there is not, not a single scholar or single human for that matter, except that they made mistakes and had errors. But that doesn't detract from their level of knowledge. And we will point out at times where in the names and attributes of Allah, they mention what is correct. And they and, and it shows you then that it wasn't just necessarily something that they that they did intentionally in that sense, but it was just something which was common and prevalent at that time. That is the major issue of this tafsir really. Um, and that's the one that the scholars who came after them have picked up upon. And that's the one that they, it's the reason why they advise that you read it with a, with a teacher. It's the reason why, you know, Sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Razak Afifi, Sheikh Safi Rahman Mubarak Fouri, uh, others uh, came and they, 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 they did their own annotations and they did their corrections of this tafsir primarily it is on this issue alone because the other issues that they have or the other things that they mention which sometimes may be not the common opinion of tafsir or they mention an opinion which is the weaker opinion of tafsir but they will always have within those opinions scholars of the past who had them scholars of the past from the early generations who said what they say even though the majority of the scholars disagreed or other scholars came and they dismissed them but they have within that people who came before them either way though uh, the major issue is the issue of aqidah. The second issue is, as I mentioned, that sometimes they have mistakes in the opinions that they choose. Mistakes in the sense that the majority of the scholars of tafsir disagreed with them. And when and where that happens, inshallah ta'ala, we'll point that out. But it is not common. And not common in the sense because, as I said, they will always have people who came before them that had the same opinion. So at the very least, uh, you know, we can say that they had scholars who they took that opinion considered to be strong it's not something which they came and made up and that is a very important point of methodology of tafsir how you know that someone is doing tafsir is that the tafsir will always be based upon something that someone before them has said we have had 1400 years of scholarship and knowledge and ulama that's what differentiates tafsir from contemplation. Contemplation, I can say to you that I think that this is how it applies to us and this is what the benefits are. But that is not tafsir. That's my contemplation, which you can take or you can reject. You can, it can be right or it can be wrong. Tafsir is something which has clearly defined principles and positions and methodologies. And that's something which, uh, you know, so even when we say, for example, that Imam Siyuti in this opinion or Al-Mahalli, their opinion wasn't mainstream, it's not the major opinion amongst the scholars of, of, of tafsir, the majority of them disagreed with this, but they will have scholars who nevertheless said that exactly the same as they said before. And finally, they have Israeliyat, which is relying on Judeo-Christian traditions within the tafsir, as is common amongst, to be frank, the vast majority of the books of tafsir, and it is something which is allowed, but sometimes within those narrations there are things that just don't seem right, or they, there are things that seem peculiar and strange. They don't mention them openly as being Judeo-Christian sources because of the brevity of this narration. But inshallah ta'ala, we will mention those there and here as well. And again, though, those are issues which scholars who came before them mentioned as well. At-Tabari and Al-Qurtubi and many who came before the two Jalals 
mentioned in extreme detail also. So therefore, the last two, their opinions and the Judeo-Christian sources are not necessarily mistakes or errors of methodology. It is something which we will speak about, but it's not really a major issue. The major one will be the points of Aqidah, which inshallah ta'ala we will refer to as and where appropriate. So that inshallah ta'ala is a brief uh, and summarized, and it is a brief and summarized biography of the two authors and their methodology of this tafsir, I want to impress upon you and really state how amazing this book of tafsir is, how important it is. Uh, and I know that it's going to be difficult to do a daily three-hour session of tafsir, not only because it's difficult and we're not used to it, but because it's something which requires stamina and determination. And as always with these cases, you know, on the first day, the third, second day, the third day, there's like lots of people. By the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth day, that's when everyone drops off because it is hard to keep that stamina and that's what differentiates the students of knowledge from everyone else. Otherwise, everyone would have those virtues and those rewards that Allah has promised to the people of knowledge and the students of knowledge. It is difficult. And the way of the scholars of old wasn't that they would do these 15-10 minute sound bites that we've become so accustomed to, this YouTube, Facebook generation, that everything has to be within two minutes. Otherwise, we don't understand and we don't have the determination, we don't have the patience. That's not knowledge. That's your Iman boosting clip. That's your something just to give you that boost and pump and that reminder. That's not knowledge. And when we start to equate knowledge with this, that is when the Ummah is in danger. And that is when the Ummah, uh, we fear for its, for its well-being and for the people of this Ummah rather, we fear for their well-being. Knowledge and tafsir especially requires from you effort. The scholars who read Al-Bukhari and the scholars who go through these amazing multiple volume books they don't just do it because they're doing 10-minute clips here and 10-minute sessions there. They're spending literally hours and hours every day reading. And that is how they finished writing these books. And that is how their students finished reading these books. And that's how the scholars who came after them finished studying these books because they put in that time and effort. So, yes, it will be difficult. And yes, it will be challenging. And yes, it's not in the best of circumstances. But it is one of the greatest pursuits of knowledge that you can take, especially in the month of Ramadan. Because the month of Ramadan is the month of the Quran. And the Quran isn't just meant to be read, which it has become the norm in our time where we read or we even read this translation, but without really understanding the tafsir and the meaning of the translation either. This is inshallah ta'ala within a month something that inshallah ta'ala at least you can say that I have done the Quran from cover to cover using a classical text based upon the principles and the methodology of the scholars of tafsir. So with that inshallah ta'ala we're going to come to an end. Uh, I have a couple of questions from my QP students. Um, which I will take. The first one is, would one require wudu when using the book? No. A book of tafsir is not the Qur'an. The Qur'an is the one that you need wudu for, not a book of tafsir. However, it is from the etiquettes of knowledge and from the practice of the scholars that you are in a state of wudu when seeking knowledge. And Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala, it is said in some of his uh, narrations concerning his life that when he would come to teach hadith he would make ghusl he would take a bath and he would wear his best clothes and he would he would put on his most expensive wear and he would perfume himself just to come and study the hadith or teach the hadith of the Prophet so it has always been from the etiquettes of knowledge to have that level of of respect for the Quran and for knowledge and especially for tafsir and at the very least even if you're not going to do um, you know anything anything else to be in a state of wudu is within itself extremely rewarding. Um, so as we said, the Tarot Taqwa translation is the one that we're going to be using. I know that it's not a cheap book. I know it's like 35, 40, 45 pounds. Honestly, I think it is a worthwhile investment 
because we are basing the tafsir on that book so to have it in front of you to be able to read from it and to follow along is what will give you the most complete experience of this tafsir session failing that you know you can use the translation of the quran but it will be no way comparable and you will i think find it difficult because of the style of tafsir that they don't do a verse and then the tafsir but rather mid verse within the verse they include the tafsir to follow along i think will be challenging so i would advise that you buy your version as far as i know there is no pdf version of this particular translation there are other translations but i don't recommend them and from my reading they are not actually better they are they are not as good uh, because of their style of translation isn't as good i think this is the best one i know it is an investment but it is an investment for knowledge and an investment inshallah ta'ala in making your ramadan that extra special inshallah ta'ala where does a Suyuti get his opinions from what are they based on it contains no references yeah because that is his uh, you know that is his his method of doing tafsir right as we said before his tafsir is a brief version so he's not going to give his opinions he's not going to tell you where they're from he's not going to give you references because then that becomes like ibn kathir it becomes like qurtubi it becomes like others and as i said it's there for you to be able to take and then to uh, build upon and to uh, learn from as well but a Suyuti takes his opinions as we said from his extensive knowledge of narrations and there are you know we don't have the time to go into this but their tafsir especially al-mahalli when he started his tafsir it was based on a number of other tafsir that he liked the idea of like for example al-wajiz by al-wahidi and others the tafsir of al-kashani and others and that's something which you know we don't have time to go into and it's not really something which is relevant for us uh, for us you know it's not something we need to really focus on but it's something which um, inshallah ta'ala and as we come through and there's issues or there's problems or so on then you know it's something which we can deal with bithnillahi ta'ala uh, someone just saying can we have a link to the book yes if you go to the um, I mean I don't have the link on me but I think there's an if you type in tafsir jalalain the darut taqwa dar taqwa um, translation it is translated by Aisha and Abdul Haq Buli two people Aisha and Abdul Haq Buli it's a blue cover I have a version but I don't have it on me it's in, it's in the other room uh, it is a thick tafsir book with a blue bluish cover uh, it is something oh there you go Shaz has just put, put up a link to the book um, you will find it inshallah ta'ala I don't know about in in, Canada, in the UK it was available I bought my own copy only a few weeks ago and other people that I know have bought them as well recently um, it's something which I would recommend that you do and I think there's a few places that will sell it uh, in terms of it being available abroad, I honestly don't know. In places like Canada and other places, I assume if you order from eBay and these websites, I mean they will they will deliver it to you wherever you are. Um, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. The lessons will take place, inshaAllah Taala, from three to six p.m. UK time daily from the first of Ramadan, whenever that is. Whatever day the first of Ramadan is, we begin every day three to six p.m. UK time in Taala, and it will be broadcast live from the Green Lane Masjid. YouTube page or Facebook page or both or whatever it is that they choose to do but that's where you'll find that from if you have another tafsir someone's asking Ibn Kathir or something else is that okay I mean not really because it's not we're not reading Ibn Kathir so to have Ibn Kathir you know you're following a different tafsir so uh, it's probably easier for you to follow just the translation otherwise I think if anything it will become more confusing not easier and one of the ways of the the methods of the scholars of the past of studying by the way is to focus on the text itself of what the author is saying and not to become distracted. And that's why Jalalain was considered a syllabus in tafsir. Because when you come to Ibn Kathir, he mentions so much detail and so many opinions that in fact it creates often more confusion 
for someone who's not well versed in tafsir and doesn't understand the methodology of Ibn Kathir ta'ala, as opposed to giving you more clarity. And the opinion or the, the methodology of the scholars of the past in fiqh, in hadith, in tafsir, in every science was always to start with a very brief uh, matan or a very brief text that they would focus on because by reading just that text you understand the important principles and that is what Jalalain does for you and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Um, Can you mention examples of speakers where it's contemplation but people think it's tafsir? That's not really something we're going to go into now, but I've given you the, the way of, of differentiating between the two. And tafsir has its complete and proper methodology and principles that you need to abide by. The Okay, someone's saying uh, in India it's not currently available, this translation because of COVID-19. Can we refer to another one that we find online? There is an online version. Um, that I saw, I didn't think it was a good translation, number one. Number two, the way that it's been translated will make it very difficult for you to follow, not only because we're not using that translation anyway, but even because of the way they're translation, they haven't got, see the, the, the printed version that I'm speaking about is very good. It has the, the Quran text in Arabic, then in the English, the bold is mentioned as the translation, so you can easily follow the verse and easily see the difference between the translation of the meanings of the Quran and between the commentary of the two Jalals. And that's so something which I would recommend. And you know, someone's just put up a, a, an Amazon link on the QP page, um, that, that, and it is available on Amazon as far as I know, and on eBay. And in fact, I think it's cheaper on, on those two websites anyway. Um, and I hope that therefore they would be able to deliver it in India and other places as well. If you can't, I, you know, I mean, I would still recommend that you, you have at least the translation of the Quran. Inshallah ta'ala, I think within the first session or two, uh, you know, you'll, you'll very easily see how easy it is to follow or not, or, you know, the way that we can do it and so on. And clearly this is something, inshallah ta'ala, that we're trying for the first time as well. So inshallah ta'ala, we hope that it will go well. Okay, so I'm going to, inshallah ta'ala, uh, close the session there. We are going to start from Fatiha, obviously. So we're going to start from the beginning. One juz of the, of the Quran a day, inshallah, starting from Fatiha, moving our way uh, towards the end of the Quran. So I'm going to, inshallah ta'ala, conclude there and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he allows us all to witness the month of Ramadan. That Allah azza wa jal makes this one of the most amazing Ramadans that we have, despite of... And in and because of the situation that we're in, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the ability to be from the people of the Quran and Salah and Dua and Dhikr in this month of Ramadan. That Allah azza wa jal makes this venture of reading and commentating on Tafsir al-Jalalain a blessed and sincere venture that Allah azza wa jal gives us the ability to do so, inshallah ta'ala, hopefully in time without any further technical issues or delays. But there you go, that is all part of the fun and games that we have in terms of trying to bring this knowledge to you. And honestly, just on a serious note, there are you know dedicated people behind this that put in so much time and effort. So I know sometimes it's frustrating when we have to wait 15, 20 minutes and we've been told half eight and it starts at nine. But that's not because people are slacking, it's because it is difficult to do and there is a lot of voluntary time going into this. Finally, for those of you on QP, um, the, the, the transcribing team has done an amazing job. This is our final lesson, obviously, of the year. And inshallah ta'ala, we will stop until after Hajj in September, sometime we restart. Um, obviously, you're more than welcome to join the Tafsir Jalalain classes. Uh, but the transcribed notes, inshallah ta'ala, are available and they are being updated and, and um, regularly posted on the portal. In addition to 
the sisters who are doing the transcribing team have done an amazing job. Not only did they dis transcribe the actual lectures, but they've done a summarized version and a summary of the summary. So you have like three different things which will help you in terms of your revision, in terms of preparing for your exams, in terms of just going through all of that information that we have done. And inshallah ta'ala, I hope that over this summer recess, any of the first, of the missing transcribed notes from the first year will also be available. They've done an amazing job and inshallah ta'ala that will all be on the portal. May Allah Azza wa reward them for their efforts and for their time. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all and show his mercy upon you. جزاكم الله خيرا وصلى على محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته